0: This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story from 1001 Nights, where we'll learn which fruit might help you and your 50 spouses conceive, and that, if hanging out on your balcony leads countless adventurers to their deaths, you might just want to stay inside. The creature this week is a good example of why it might not be great to have a cryptid named after you, especially if that creature is a dorky-looking bottom feeder with a scraggly beard. This is Myths and Legends, episode 356, Nifty Fifty. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, we're back in the stories of 1001 Nights, a collection of tales from the Middle Ages and the Arabian Peninsula. Not a whole lot to go into here so we'll just jump into a sultan living the life of his dreams, or nightmares. Sometimes it can be hard to tell. Hey, so, praying, huh? The venerable elderly man said. The sultan looked around the black and endless void. He didn't remember falling asleep in a black and endless void. Wait, was he dreaming? The old man smiled. That was right. Lucid dreaming, huh? The sultan said. Could he, like, fly on command? Would he have superpowers? What about cake? Could he make way too much cake? Ah, you're focusing on the wrong thing here, the venerable old man pointed to himself. So, the sultan had been praying for an heir... The sultan held out his hand, trying to use his telekinetic force powers. He said, yeah, no dice, though. I have 50 wives, too, so you think something would happen. My advisor was all like, maybe after the first dozen wives, it's you. I had him exiled. Well, your prayers have been heard. You will have heirs. The old man smiled. Wait, really? The sultan turned to the old man and then rushed to embrace him. Wait, plural? Heirs? He was grateful for even one. How many would he have? As many as you want, the old man said with a smile. When he awoke, he needed only to go to the garden of his palace, and his gardener would bring him a plump, ripe pomegranate. He could eat as many seeds as he desired, children, and his wish would be fulfilled. In a moment, mainly because his message was complete, but also mainly because he didn't want the sultan to keep trying lucid dreaming stuff, the elderly man commanded it, and the sultan awoke. He slid and skidded on the stones, rushing as fast as he could to his garden, yelling out for his gardener to wake up and meet him there. The gardener, unused to late-night garden emergencies, because those don't exist, rubbed the slate from his eyes. As he presented the sultan with a pomegranate, he clipped from the tree, and the sultan tore it open with a knife from the garden. There he found the seed. The pomegranate was full of them. He plucked one and ate it. Then two, two kids was a good number, Rental cars and hotel rooms were easy. Three was fun, too. He ate another. But then, what if two got along and the other didn't? Better make it four. Ah, but five, they could have a basketball team. And at that point, they were only a few off from a soccer team, and... Well, you see where this is going. The sultan started shoving all the seeds in his mouth, sinking his teeth into the pomegranate. By the time he was finished, he had eaten all 50 seeds the pomegranate had to offer making for a nice round number. 50 wives, 50 children. The sultan sat back. So, Piroz, was it? Piroz looked at him. She was his wife. He should really know her name. Well, one of 50, the sultan raised up his hands. But this talk wasn't about who knows whose name. This was about... He gestured to her abdomen. I noticed you're not showing yet? Piroz said she wasn't showing because she wasn't pregnant. We got her, boys, the sultan said. And scribes emerged from behind the curtains. The sultan laughed, confessing like that. Rookie mistake. The vizier stepped up. He actually didn't know what the point of this was. She confessed that she wasn't pregnant, but they all knew she wasn't pregnant. That was, I guess, the issue, even though it wasn't really an issue. I'm building a case for her execution. The sultan pointed out that she, obviously, was hateful in the eyes of heaven to not be pregnant according to the pomegranate seeds when all the other wives were. The vizier said that he was a medieval monarch. He didn't need to build a case for execution. Just execute but the vizier advised some restraint. Maybe instead of an execution, a simple banishment. Send her back to her own people. The will of heaven might not declare itself immediately. She could be pregnant, but just not showing it. In time, heaven would declare itself. The sultan, who was bummed about not having an execution today, but saw the merits in restraint, said, whatever, okay, sure. Time goes by fast when you're raising 49 children, or are in the proximity of servants raising your 49 children that you sometimes see, or when your city is under attack. A lot. The Sultan had many enemies. Power attracts enemies, of course, but also being the type to banish your wife for not becoming immediately pregnant isn't isolated to that particular incident. That kind of terribleness just sort of bleeds over into the rest of your life which was why this beautiful, kind, and strong young man was such a breath of fresh air. It was also nice that that young man rose in the ranks, led the warriors, and single-handedly saved the kingdom from its enemies. How old are you? the sultan asked. Eighteen, Kodadad replied. Ah, whoa, I have 49 sons who are also 18. All have stark black hair just like you about your height. Where do you come from, Kodadad? Kodadad definitely wasn't from the kingdom of Peros, the king's former wife. No, he was the son of an emir from Cairo. And he was here to help. Because, as we've talked about, in the Middle Ages, beautiful equals good. Soon, Codadad, a random youth who, remember, was not from Peros' kingdom. He was very clear on that. Codadad wasn't just running an army, but he was also the overseer of the king's 49 heirs partially because he was their age and could relate to them, partially because Kodadad was everything the sultan wanted his sons to grow to be, except they wouldn't grow to be like him because he was technically a few months younger than them. Anyway, when you drill it into your kid's head how awesome this other kid is, and that you should be like them because you're dirt and trash, they might, surprisingly, grow resentful. Parenting can be tricky. The brothers called a family meeting. They all hated having a chaperone nanny they needed to go to in order to get petty cash. How could they solve this problem? Notice the wink. How could they ensure that Codedad would not trouble them anymore? See him dragging his finger across his throat. Ah, another brother chimed in. How can we make it so that he bleeds out all of his blood and is no longer a living person, you mean? The first brother said that they were looking for A little more subtlety than that, but yes, anything. No bad ideas. One raised his hand. What if they, I don't know, stabbed him a lot? The lead brother pointed, good. Good, he liked the initiative. He knew he said no bad ideas, but that was unfortunately a bad idea. Dad loved this guy, and it would come back on them. They had to be more subtle. Another raised his hand. Dad was famously petulant, mercurial. What if they got Codadad in trouble? Didn't even have to be all that severe. Then, their dad would execute the guy. And no more chaperones. They could do whatever they wanted again. Nintendo 64 and Surge Cola to 1030 and beyond. The lead brother nodded. Okay, yeah, that did give him an idea. This was good. Hey, we want to go hunting. One of the brothers said to Codadad the next day. Codadad said he couldn't go hunting today. He had a lot to do. We want to go hunting, the brother whined. Codedad said they would all go hunting tomorrow. He had to work. The lead brother chimed in and handed the one who was a week younger than him a lollipop. He said he knew Codedad was busy, so he could take his 48 brothers hunting. They will be back by the end of the day, no problem. Codedad sighed. It would be nice to have the 48 kids his same age out of his hair, so he could get some work done today. Okay. The Lee brother could take the others out hunting, but he had to be back by the end of the day. Four days later, the Sultan was livid. Where were his boys, his heirs? How do you lose 48 children? Kodadad said it was just hunting. He thought they would be fine. They're also like not children. They're adults now. I asked a stranger the same age as them to chaperone them. They're not fine. One of them last summer blamed an older boy for taking one of his magic cards. It was one of my nobles. I had to have the whole family executed. But then, well, he found it behind the couch. Egg on my face, right? They are ridiculously incompetent. But you need to go find them. Or it'll be your head. Which was exactly what the brothers had been going for the entire time. Run off, have a slumber party in a different castle, come back to a dead Codadad. Codadad, though, wouldn't go gentle into that good night. He was going to find those guys and drag them back to the castle or... Well, he would just ride off and go somewhere else. It was a big world, and there was no point in dying for this. We'll see where Codedad finds the brothers, but that will be right after this. We're about a month and a half into the new year. Our household goal of eating healthier, it's still going strong.
1: Are you a little surprised?
0: I am, actually. And I'm big surprised that Thrive Market has been a major factor in this.
1: To be honest, we started out using Thrive Market because of the convenience of having grocery and household items shipped to us. We tried it for one month, and then that became another, and then another.
0: Repeatedly, we were super impressed by how much we liked the things we were getting.
1: It's become our consistent place for everything from pantry items to pet supplies, snacks, beverages. The menu bar across the top of the site keeps it very organized.
0: We're finding so many cool things that we like. I, for one, always look through the deals, and then I'll filter by high fiber. The fiber. (laughs) Yeah. Woo. But I found a lot of new favorites that way, really.
1: And how much did we save last time? It
0: was just shy of like 40 bucks. 3987 just pulled it up.
1: As a Thrive Market member, we save an average of 30% I'd say every time. It's icing on the cake.
0: Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com/legends for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's t h r i v e market.com/legends. thrivemarket.com/legends
1: who needs clocks when you have cats? And we have three.
0: Yeah, their day is measured by meals. And uh, because of that, so is ours.
1: Those little paws reach over the desk like, "Hey, hey, 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 so
0: we do the wet food routine, even though wet cat food stinks, even though I can smell it downstairs from upstairs while I'm trying to eat my own lunch.
1: Gross, as gross as the pungent kibble they used to eat. That was also disgusting.
0: All of that, though, was before smalls. If you have a cat, Smalls is for them just as much as it's for you.
1: Smalls is real food for cats. It's fresh with no fillers, packed with all natural protein, nutrition and moisture, making it highly digestible. It's everything cats need. Plus, it's delivered to your door and does not stink.
0: Even picky little apple leaves no bits behind. And the vet's impressed with her urinary health now. So I can see why 90% of cat owners report overall health improvements after making the switch to Smalls.
1: Let your cat be the judge. You can try Smalls risk-free, and if your cat won't eat it, the team at Smalls will refund you.
0: It's 2024. Are you still feeding your cat kibble? Head to smalls.com legends and use promo code legends at checkout for 50% off your first order, plus free shipping.
1: That's the best offer you'll find, but you have to use my code legends for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code legends for 50% off your first order, plus free shipping.
0: man, young man, turn back. The woman yelled from the black marble castle. Codedad squinted from horseback. Was someone calling out to him? Wait, yeah. Beautiful maiden atop the tower? He turned and rode to her. Did you not hear me? I said turn back, for a foul giant lives in this castle, the woman called out. She explained, through a lot of yelling, that she had been on her way to Baghdad when her company had been waylaid by a giant. Who ate some of her companions as a road snack, tucked a few away for later in the dungeon, and kept her in the tower. So many had come to try to rescue her, and all of them died in the attempt. The last thing she wanted was to see another brave person perish on her account. I mean, stay inside then? Codadad shrugged. What? Yeah, just like no judgment. If you want to be rescued, own it. I understand the subtext of him setting you aside in the high tower while the other humans will be eaten, but, like, be real with yourself and others. If you don't want to put travelers at risk, maybe don't call out to them. Just stay inside, Codedad said. The woman paused for a moment, then admitted, yeah, she she really wanted to be rescued. Yeah, cool. I respect that. I would too, Codedad said. And paused himself. Yeah, so, this conversation, uh, well, it seems to have forced the issue. The ground began to rumble. The giant that emerged from the Black Marble Castle was... a normal guy. Just very big. Also a cannibal, which was mainly why he was interested in Codadad, in addition to possible other reasons, the woman in the tower was catnip to guys riding by. Nothing drew them in faster than a woman screaming in a tower. All he had to do was bop them on the head, then drag them down to the dungeon. Or just eat them there as a nice little snack. Which was what he would have done if Codadat hadn't disappeared after the first blow. Codadat, diving from his horse and slapping the beast to get her to run to safety, knew that he had to be fast. He also knew that knee stuff will mess you up. Knee stuff can be sneaky. I was young when I started this podcast. Now I'm go jogging with the dog, move a weird way once, and my knee hurts for weeks, years old. Something to look forward to, kids. And I didn't even have someone the relative size of a toddler slashing at it. People tear their ACL, but the giant had a sliced ACL. He dropped in pain and panic, thinking of the months of physical therapy before he was going to be back to normal, And Codedad didn't wait before putting his sword through the giant's neck. Almost as quickly as the fight began, it was over. The woman descended the black, winding stairs of the tower and threw her arms around Codedad. But their meat brute was interrupted when cries of anguish and despair came from the dungeons below. Oh yeah, they think that since they heard the gate open, that the giant is coming back to eat one of them. There are like a hundred guys down there, the woman said. It's, uh, the giant's dead now, the woman called down into the darkness. There was some light cheering down below, before one voice called back, Wait, he wasn't replaced by a bigger, worse giant, was he? The woman said no, it was, what's your name? Codadad. Some guy named Codadad. Only silence below, and then, a, oh. When Codadad descended into the putrid murk that was the dungeon, he saw the reason for the lukewarm reception. All 49 of the princes sat alongside approximately 50 other prisoners. Each one of them had been lured inside, but the giant, who rotates his human meals, was going with the ones who had been there the longest, so they still had a while. I was out looking for you, Codadad said to the lead prince, but he imagined that they already knew that. He would have been killed if he returned without them, but they knew that too, didn't they? The prince's heads drooped. They were so sorry. Then the lead one looked forward with a new ferocity. He found a nearby prisoner hunched over in a bad spot and stood on his back. Oh, captain, my captain. Forty-eight other princes found the exhausted backs of their fellow prisoners and stood too. From that day on, they would follow Codadad. All of them emerged from the dungeon and chasing the stable hands off into the desert because they're the good guys Kodadad turned to the woman. He would take the princess back to their father, but first, where did she need to go? She said she had been going toward Baghdad, but that was not her home. In fact, she could never go home. She had kept this hidden from them, but she was a princess. Kodadad and the princess looked at each other. Oh, yeah, I mean, they guessed that. It made sense. Woman calling out from the tower. I mean, not that she necessarily needed to be a princess, but it wasn't surprising that she was one. It was a little strange that she couldn't go home, though. Why was that? Also, why was it slowly fading out into an embedded story? Wait, are they... Were they in a framing narrative? Princess Duyabar, the princess of the story, her father was king among the isles. Which isles? Well, wouldn't you like to know? I would, too, actually. There are a lot of islands in the world, and we'll just have to be content with the knowledge that Princess Duryabar's father was king over some, but probably not all of them. Is all this going to be this wordy because I do have to get these 49 guys back to their dad? They're like toddlers, but less responsible and safe, Kodadad asked. Duryabar ignored him. Duryabar said her father was forlorn. By her, and the fact that she wasn't a boy. She guessed this until she was old enough for him to tell her. Daily, he would often go out hunting in the wilderness to console himself from his despair that his child was not a boy. It was on one of these hunting trips that he chanced upon a camp. A husband, a wife, and their crying child all sat around a fire while the husband cooked. The king nearly emerged from the forest when he realized that the child was screaming, the man was a giant, and the woman's hands were bound. Oh, this was a very different situation than what he thought. As if needing to catch the king up on what was right in front of his face, the giant said that if the woman would just accept the good things within her reach, and yield to him the love he demanded, she would find him to be the gentlest and most considerate of lords. Immediately proving or disproving that sentence, when the woman called him a vile monster and said merely looking at him filled her with hatred. He picked her up by the hair. Shoot, 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 the king said, scrambling for his sword. He had been wrapped up in the drama. He might not be a great fighter, but he didn't have to be when it came to stabbing a guy in the back. The princess, pulling a Dante, swooned, and the king did his best to roll her clear of the giant blood. He let the kids splash around in it and have fun. He was a good dad, aww. He thought about his girl daughter, and now he was sad again. The dad king learned that the woman was the wife to a cheat from a faraway land. Like, so far away, there was no hope of her ever returning there. Ever. Which, the story tells us this is an indisputable fact. But if someone woke up and said, Oh, your spouse lives in, I don't know, Antarctica? That is so far away. You're never going back there. Ever. You might read that as... Something of a threat. Especially if, like in this story, it was coupled with a, so you should marry me. Which she did. Maybe because it was love at first sight for the first guy to take a pot shot at a giant when he was about to beat her or eat her. Or because of the implication that she was far from home and it didn't matter what she said anyway because she was never going back to anyone she knew. The king adopted the son as a new prince. And things went well until they got weird. So, daughter, the king said, he knew they hadn't always seen eye to eye, what with him hating her and all that for her gender. Princess Dreebar said he wasn't off to a great start here, but okay. The king said, well, she knew the son of the princess, right? Your kidnap victim? The king held up his hands, they weren't going to go through all that again. Well, after the queen died, her son, their son, "'started thinking about legacy, "'started thinking about marriage, "'started thinking about Duryabar.' "'Duryabar grimaced. "'Oh, she understood where this was going, "'and he wants to marry you,' the king said. Then he said he could see from his daughter's face "'that she was not into it. "'She said, no, of course she wasn't. "'He was like a brother to her, "'in that he was her adopted brother.' "'The king said he understood.' Completely. No wedding. Then Duryabar said, really? No malicious turn? No locking her up until she said yes? Holding up his hands, the king said, whoa, no, 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 no. Look, they didn't get along. But he also found all this super weird and gross, too. Like she said, they were brother and sister. He didn't know where all this creepy stuff was coming from, but he didn't like it. If she wanted to, he would have held his nose and supported it, but he wasn't going to make her do it. She was his daughter. He loved her. She embraced her father. It had never been easy between them, but she was glad he was looking out for her. Two days later, the king was dead. It was a terrible accident. He fell onto some knives while meeting with his heir apparent. Tragic. Mere minutes after the king stopped moving... All the lights in Duryabar's room went out, and rough hands found her mouth before she could scream. A gag, a hood, and a hard landing in a box later, and they dragged her from the room. see how Duryabar makes it to the castle of the giant, but that will, once again, be read after this. The first guy got a punch to the throat when they opened up the chest before they were able to restrain Duryabar. She squinted her father's, wait, vizier? She felt the roll of the boat, what what was this? The vizier informed her that the king was dead. As vizier, he had been privy to the talks regarding the prince and his gross wishes. As soon as he heard the news, he had to get her out of the palace as quickly as possible. She rose, dusting herself off, grateful for his quick thinking, but a little annoyed that it seemed like she was being taken by the prince's men. Hmm, yeah, I see how that... If this were being told back to me in, say, an audio medium, that might feel like something of a cheap mislead, the vizier acknowledged. He said he had been making preparations for something like this since he heard of the prince's desires. He had paid for passage for her on a ship, and even he didn't know where it was going, so that when the prince asked him, with knives, he wouldn't even be able to say. She embraced the man who saved her life, thanking him. He stayed at the dock until she could no longer see the dock. A few days later, Duryabar awoke, face down in the sand. Wait. She hadn't fallen asleep face down in sand. She had fallen asleep, she looked at the planks of wood and shredded canvas around her. Oh. She had no memories of the night before, but she could only guess that she had fallen asleep on the boat and sometime in the night, they hit a storm. She struggled to her palms to sit up and as far as she could tell, she was the only survivor. Before she even had a chance to put her feet underneath her, she heard the hooves. With trepidation, her eyes found the group of horsemen, and she saw their leader. A man who looked like a prince, because remember, middle ages and beautiful equals good, he dismounted from his horse, took her into his arms, and she fainted. it was their wedding day. Things moved fast in the ancient medieval world. She was a princess, which was all the queen mother cared about, and the kids were intensely attracted to each other, which was all they cared about. So their wedding was scheduled for the following week. When you have a big wedding like that, you always run the risk of some gate crashers, and Durya and her husband, did have that problem. Theirs was a bit more intense, though. When the marauders literally crashed into the guys at the city gate, Cut them, quote, "to pieces, which shows that they loved their work because it was so excessive, and they kept going. They picked a good night for it too, because, with the city partying for Duryabar and the Crown Prince’s wedding, no one was in the mood for a fight. Like Gurney Hollick says, “You fight when the necessity arises, no matter the mood. Unfortunately, they had not read dune and were cut down almost to a man. The newlyweds escaped into a boat and rowed away from the city burning on the horizon. Being newlyweds can be challenging. Being newlyweds when you're both newly without a home, set adrift on the sea without provisions, or really any hope at all, is slightly more challenging. Still, they did it. They worked together to survive. They had their problems, sure, but they worked through them with communication, respect, and love. When they finally saw the rescue ship crest the horizon, they knew that they were going to be okay not just physically safe, but they, as a couple, were gonna make it. They shouted and waved, and saw the ship turn to come toward them. Beaming, the pair embraced. Then the husband squinted, his smile faded. He shook his head and began to rummage through his things, and emerged with a sword. These men hadn't come to rescue them. They were pirates, slavers. He had his sword and she a plank of wood. The pirates pinned Duryabar early, looping the rope around her wrists. Her husband saw and rushed to a raid, and while he killed her attacker, she screamed as she saw the sword protruding from his abdomen. It was down to him and the pirate leader, and he, her husband, had lost. You two married? Duryabar couldn't take her eyes off her husband, bound and bleeding on the deck. Are you married? The pirate shouted. Saribar winced at the sharp kick to her husband's wound. The prince cried out. The pirate said from what it looked like they were newlyweds. Did they consummate their union? She looked up at him in disgust. He drew his sword. She said no, they were attacked on their wedding day. They've been fighting for their lives since. Good, I don't have to kill you both, the pirate said. And with a kick, sent the bound and bleeding prince overboard. Careful, princess, the pirate warned as he dragged Duryabar away from the edge. She watched her husband struggle against his ropes, the blood in the water eventually leaving a trail to nowhere. She would be sold. A woman like her would fetch a high price in the kingdoms of the north. Or she would have been sold if, traveling through the desert, she hadn't slashed all of his water skins, leading her and the others he had hired to the Onyx Fortress for help and the pirate leader to a grisly end as specks of bone and flesh on the giant's club. So that was her story, Duryabar said. Not really grasping the idea of too soon, Kodadad kneeled in front of Duryabar. She could be safe with him. He gestured to the 49 princes behind him. Now that he had their undying loyalty, he had a story of his own. A story of a princess, a concubine who was banished from her husband's home, who gave birth in secret, trained up the child to be his father's true heir, and then, when the time was right, sent him back to take his rightful place. The brothers looked at each other. Wow, that sounded just like their stepmom? Aunt Perosa's story? Wait, what was the relationship between a wife and another wife's children? While they were working that one out, it was quickly overshadowed by the revelation that Codadad, was the 50th child. The brothers looked at one another and began cheering his name. They had a brother. Another one. They all agreed that he should be the true heir to his father. Because not only was it the right thing to do, but that should get him sufficiently off guard for a midnight stabbing. Wait, what? Kodadad said a few days later, sitting up in his cot, the desert wind whipping around him. Yeah, sorry bro, but... We're still petty and a little evil. Um Bye The brother winced as he put a hand over Kodadad's mouth. Then they all took turns stabbing him until he stopped fighting back. The brothers emerged from the tent, wiping their knives. Outside, a few of the other brothers had Duryabar gagged. The Lee brother gave the signal, and they released Duryabar. They rode away to the sound of her wailing by the side of yet another man that she loved dead. Then she heard something, breath. Kodadad struggled, but he still drew breath. Gritting her teeth, Duryabar rose. She told him to hold on. She would get help. She would save him. a 40-minute walk to the nearest village, a half an hour to find the surgeon and longer to tell him the story and convince him to follow her into the desert and then the walk back out. When Duryabar and the surgeon found the camp, Duryabar feared the worst. She could not expect what was actually there because it was nothing. Kodadab was gone. The surgeon's shoulders slumped. He had lived in this land all of his life. If Kodadab was as bad as Duryabar said he had probably been dragged off by animals. The surgeon was so sorry. Duryabar was inconsolable. There was no justice in this world. The pirate first, and now the brothers, and they would all get away with it. The surgeon said, well, that wasn't necessarily true. There was a justice, but only the justice that we make in this world. There's only justice for people brave enough to stand for what's right. Kodadad might be dead, but he could live on in story. There bar looked up but but how? The surgeon would have to clear his schedule, but they would need to go to the Sultan. It would be tricky, as in deadly, to get to the Sultan without the brothers knowing. There were 49 of them. Luckily, when the princess and Duryabar returned to the city, by way of caravan, wrapped in cloaks so no one would recognize the princess, they learned they might have an inn. Piroz had returned, Kodadad's mother. Keeping her own personal guard supplied by her father, she had returned to the city of her husband, nearly 20 years later, after she had been cast out. Having faith in her son, she had returned at an epic I-told-you-so move, only to learn that Cotadab was brave and had risen in his father's kingdom, only to get stabbed in the desert and carried off by a giant. She went to the mosque daily to pray for her son, and it was on one such trip, while giving alms to beggars, that she found a note in her own hand. If the queen would have news of her son, Prince Cotadab, let her send for the stranger, who will be found waiting at the door of her palace. She thought that that was an overly wordy secret missive, but sure. After they found the surgeon, Perose and her guards met him in a secret room, where he told her everything. Thankfully, I've never gotten such terrible news as learning my child had been stabbed by his 49 brothers, each one with a different wife. A lot of that would be questionable to me. But if I did get the news, I can't imagine I would pantomime the stabbing, acting as if I myself were being stabbed, as I was being told the story before collapsing on the ground, which is what Perrault's did. The surgeon, probably acknowledging that everyone deals with such traumatic news differently, let whatever that was happen. Until, 20 minutes or so later, the queen was restored to consciousness. She looked to the surgeon with a serious brow. Go tell the princess Duryabar that the sultan would receive her with all the honors due her rank. Duryabar witnessed a whole face journey as she told how Kodadad slew the giant, rescuing them all, and then was betrayed by his brothers, but lived, but then was dragged off by wild animals to be killed. And this was the kicker, Codadad was his secret son. The sultan's reaction was both more measured than that of Kodadad's mother, but also way, way more intense, because it resulted in the execution order of every one of his 49 sons. Even Duryabar, though angry and aggrieved, Thought that that was a bit excessive, like, yay, justice. But wasn't that the reason for the pomegranate thing at the top of the episode? That the sultan needed a son? Maybe it would be good to keep one or two in reserve. No? Uh, whatever. So the sultan had all of his children executed. Well, well, he would have had all of his sons executed. But first, a giant dome to serve as a mausoleum and a memorial for Kodadad. Sometimes I can get a little distracted if I need to get back to someone, but there's an issue with the episode that just came out, well, one of those takes precedence. Just like, if you're going to execute 49 of your children, and you're also being invaded, well, one of those needs to be dealt with, so you can do the other one eventually. Yeah, finding out that Cotadab was dead, the enemies that Kodadad put to flight earlier in the episode, returned with a vengeance, like, actual vengeance. They were going to tear the Sultan city apart, and also do the same to the sultan in the process. The sultan, forlorn by the loss of his new favorite son and by the eventual self-inflicted loss of all the others, rode to war ahead of his army. If he was going to die, he was going to die with honor, defending his people until the very end. Horse beating the ground underneath him, the sultan pointed his sword and cried out, This would be a good death. And then... He watched as an army crashed into his enemy from the left, catching them off guard and mostly annihilating them. He slowed, and his own army was the cleanup crew. As quickly as it began, it was over. They won, but who had saved them? It was, of course, Codadad. This guy, a peasant who said he hadn't come to rob me, but I think actually came to rob me, found me there, in the tent, Codadad said, later on in the city. I was breathing, though, and he took pity, strapping me to his horse and taking me and my 49 stab wounds into town. There, he and his family cared for me, bringing me back to the world. I gave them all my walking around diamonds. Wasn't much, only like 40 or 50 diamonds, Codadad said, but soon he was strong enough to rise. He would go home. His brothers wouldn't win. They would see that it was harder to kill Codadad than they thought. He walked from the house to an announcement in the square. The nearby sultan was riding against the Sultan of Haran, Codadad's father. The people watched as Codadad walked over and strategically placed a sword in the messenger's chest. He pulled it out, and the man dropped to the ground. "'Your sultan needs you,' I said, rising on a barrel or jar or something." growing. The crowd leaned in. I said I would arm them, lead them. They need only follow me and fight, not for themselves, not for their home, but for their sultan. There there was a long silence before the prince added, also more diamonds. The people cheered. They rode to battle. Each of the villagers who had jeopardized their lives for the sultan held out their shirt as the vizier scooped diamonds into it and Kodadad talked with his dad and mother, arm in arm with Duryabar. I'll have you know, I have your brothers scheduled for execution. The sultan searched Kodadad's face for approval, but didn't find it. The brothers were wicked and ungrateful, but they were still not only the sultan's flesh and blood, but Kodadad's as well. Kodadad would pardon them. And so ends the story of Kodadad, who, striking his brother's chains with his sword, granted them their freedom. He knew that love and forgiveness was better than holding someone to account for violent, premeditated murder. And this never backfired. Despite the story not saying that he and Duryabar had children or ruled the sultandom and no one mentioning him ever again. The end. I really don't know what happened. Probably wasn't a good idea freeing the brothers, but I've never really ruled a kingdom. Then again, neither had Kodadad, so maybe I'm right to question his judgment on this one. Next week, it's Icelandic folklore. And you'll see that if you meet a talking dog telling you to do dangerous stuff, uh, well, I maybe don't listen to them. That's pretty obvious. creature this week is the Sea Monk, from Scandinavia. The Sea Monk is... Well, I don't really know what it is. It's not a monk and it's not a fish. The jury is still out on what exactly the water creature part of the Sea Monk is. The jury for cryptids being like, three people on a forum somewhere and their eight blogs. We do have a drawing of the Sea Monk, which is a human on top and a squid below the waist, which sounds weirder than it probably should. Most depictions of it are if, like, a person started drawing a monk, and then got bored halfway through and switched to Cthulhu. Except for one, a truly horrifying 16th century drawing from Denmark, which was supposedly from an eyewitness. The problem? Well, that eyewitness didn't see the creature until it was long dead and deteriorated. It's like seeing a decaying human corpse, and then thinking that all humans must look like zombies. The sea monk depiction is truly terrifying, though, and I linked a picture in the show notes. First discovered by, quote, the founder of early modern ichthyology, Pierre Ballon showed the world that you couldn't be afraid to depict absolutely ridiculous things in the name of science. But really, apparently, he was not wrong to do so. The discovery of the creature allegedly kicked off sea monk fever in Europe, with everyone wanting to know more about this weird-looking creature. The sea monk is also called the monkfish, which is an actual type of fish. I posted a video of a monkfish, which I'm not 100% sure isn't just someone who glue googly eyes on a rock in the middle of the ocean. Monkfish are lazy bottom feeders, sticking their tongues out with a scraggly beard. When it comes to both the sea monk and the monkfish, you have to think that whoever named these things had a very low opinion of monks. We've talked about the bishopfish, which definitely appears to have its life more together than the monkfish. The bishop fish will grant you wishes, has hands, and a much fuller beard for a fish. The sea monk will just stare at you awkwardly and maybe try to bite you. That's it for this time. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Colmes. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.